Good evening, everybody. Can you hear me properly at the back? Great. Um, thank you very much for that very kind introduction. Uh, and uh, thank you for the chance to come back to Oxford, where I paid my dues as a DPhil student in the mid to late 1980s. And for any graduate students among you, I'd like to say that in my experience, few things in life are more challenging than navigating the isolation and uncertainty of this stage of study while having to construct a book-length argument, each sentence of which has to be defended. It toughens you up, but there is light at the end of the tunnel. This is even more daunting if you experience mental illness or addiction during that period, as I did. All good education should cause what feels like an intellectual nervous breakdown in the student. Otherwise, the institution isn't doing its job of challenging them to abandon old ideas and to grow. For the vast majority of students, this is a benign crisis somewhat stressful, but which can nevertheless be negotiated. What you don't want is an actual nervous breakdown. Then it is the duty of the university and the NHS to catch the bodies as they fall. Due to poor life choices, addiction, and a tendency to, depress to depression, I found myself in Oxford, mid-thesis, in such emotional pain that I referred myself to the University Counselling Service. There I was seen for four sessions by a perceptive woman in a sky-blue polar neck sweater who worked out the terms of my difficulties with me. However, this wasn't enough. I was lucky enough to have as my GP the excellent late Dr Anne McPherson, to whom I'm very grateful, who referred me for therapy to the Warnford Hospital. There, I was enrolled, not entirely willingly, in group therapy, which I found exquisitely painful, but which gave me the impetus to move out of the baffling and destructive situation in which I found myself. This was already a vast improvement in the mental health provision when I was an undergraduate at Cambridge, where a crisis in my second year led to a diagnosis of anxiety from a GP and two weeks in the college sick bay. There I was allowed to chain smoke, shake and hyperventilate to my heart's content. <laughs> I'll be forever grateful to those who argued that I should be allowed a holding space for the worst of my panic to die down and for it to become clear what steps I needed to take in order to recover. I decided to take the rest of the year off. This was called degrading, a label which didn't help my spirits as I sat on the train pulling out of Cambridge, feeling as if my life was over. After a period away, working in the men's clothing department of Marks and Spencer's in Cardiff, among other things, this was deeply therapeutic, I might add, I returned the following academic year and very happily finished my degree. What helped me in both these cases was the humanity of those in charge, who, of those who cared for me, 
and helped me to devise the best possible way for me to tackle the issues that had temporarily, but with terrifying consequences, paralysed me. Both crises occurred before the advent, uh, the advent of SSRI antidepressants and today's burgeoning of counsellors and therapists. When I returned to live in Wales, I was referred to a psychiatrist who was also a qualified psychotherapist, as rare as hen's teeth, especially in Wales. This was a piece of miraculous good luck, especially as Dr Scorer was a serious reader of poetry. I was able to see him on the NHS for over a decade, first weekly, then fortnightly, and then when the need arose. Even in pre-austerity days, this should never have happened. It did because a compassionate individual took it upon himself to hold a conversation with me of a quality that enabled me to change the grammar of my life. It was a rescue from the dysfunctional monologue in my head, out into the sunlight of dialogue. This exchange takes work and commitment and requires great precision of language. I've gone into this history at some length because the lack of mental health provision for young people has been in the news so much recently. Even though I'm as out as it's possible to be about my experience of mental illness, having written a book about it, Sunbathing in the Rain, I'm aware of the shame I feel about my condition. This, I believe, is one of the symptoms of the illness. I feel that Professor Steve West, Vice-Chancellor of the University of the West of England's suggestion that students should declare mental health problems as they apply for a place is problematic. I understand that the desire is here to support students, but A, when I applied for my own place in school, from school, I beg your pardon, I didn't even know what my issues were, and B, even if I had, and even if confidentiality were guaranteed, I would find it very hard to believe that it wouldn't reduce my chances of being accepted. What ties the art of poetry with the promotion of mental health is the commitment to conversation rather than soliloquy. The talking therapies have always been at the forefront of treatments for depression. They have been shown to be at least as effective as medication. This must depend in part on the quality of that exchange. I fear that cognitive behavioural therapy, or CBT, is too often used as a cut-price form of therapy, though it does have its uses in reframing, as a reframing device for minor to mild depressive issues. I also have my doubts about the current fashion for mindfulness as a panacea for mental distress. As research shows, the technique can be very effective, but it needs highly skilled teachers, which can't be provided in the sufficient numbers by the current general rollout. The whole point of the technique is to teach the subject to pay less attention to the babblings of the ego consciousness. Mindlessness, if you like. It's very easy to do the opposite, to become even more enmeshed in that destructive pattern, and that will get us nowhere. 
Much is made of the therapeutic properties of poetry these days, with arts organisations offering the habits of art, both for the reader and the practitioner, as a way of improving health outcomes. I believe passionately that the act of participating in good art is essential for personal and social well-being, and that to make access harder to it is to make us lesser beings, both in terms of our personal mental health and in the vigour of our ability to think critically about important decisions we make socially and politically. I think of art as a vaccine that helps protect our collective immune systems from the worst that we can do to ourselves and to others. It's fashionable at the moment for those who advocate the arts to argue that in some situations it should be prescribed on the national health. If we're going to do that, even rhetorically, then we have to ask the question, who, like nice, is going to ensure good practice? But if poetry, therefore, is a therapy, then it follows logically that it must be able to harm as well as heal the poet-patient. I've seen arts bodies arguing for money from public health budgets to put into art interventions. If art is considered as therapeutic, then isn't it honest to ask if it can injure as well as heal? So, what are the poisons which are associated with the art of poetry? I'm going to talk about the benefits, of course, uh, as well. <laughs> Language is what makes us social beings. The Russian poet and Nobel laureate Joseph Brodsky, who was sentenced to hard labour in the USSR, claimed that poetry shows human evolution happening at the sharp end. Hardly surprising, then, that poets who practice language under the most extreme formal and syntactical constraints should know a little about, cost, about the costs and benefits of deploying the forces of eloquence. Often, a writer's work comes before his or her family, health, financial well-being, anything, so it would have more effect than anything else. This is because refusing the vocation feels more frightening to the artist than material disaster. Dostoevsky, the author of uh, Crime and Punishment, spent four years in the Gulag, where he wasn't able to write. On his release, he was terrified that he wouldn't be able to start again. In a letter to, to his brother, he speculated, how many forms still alive and created by men anew will perish, extinguished in my brain, or dissolved like poison in my bloodstream? Yes, if it's impossible to write, I will die. Better 15 years imprisonment with pen in hand. Notice here the image of poison in the blood. Dostoevsky can't have known that the blood chemistry of depresses is depressives is compromised so that not writing is here identified with the writer's destruction. In the last four years I've been working with Rowan Williams on a translation of the Welsh language Taliesin poetry into English. That's for Penguin Classics. The historical Taliesin was a follower of several warlords in the 6th century. Um, a contemporary of Aneirin, who wrote the earliest poem in Welsh when the language was spoken as far north as Edinburgh, 
This Taliesin left wonderful poems evoking the glamour of warfare and the material richness of court life. Uh, I think a poet earned quite a lot of money um, from his patron. However, later medieval poets turned the actual poet Taliesin into a character in a myth and then wrote poems which they ascribed to that character. That work can be very obscure, but it is, glor it is gloriously imaginative. For example, this is the poet speaking, I was in many forms before my release. I was a slim enchanted sword. I believe in its play. I was a drop in air, the sparkling of stars, a word inscribed, a book in priest's hands, a lantern shining for a year and a half, a bridge for crossing over three score abbers. I was a path, I was eagle, I was a coracle at sea. I was bubbles in beer, I was a raindrop in showers. I was a sword in the hand, I was a shield in battle. I was a harp string enchanted nine years in water, foaming. I was tinder in fire, I was a forest ablaze. This shape-shifting shows how volatile a poet's sense of self can be. Sometimes I feel that I leave my body so often while using my imagination that I'm in danger of never finding it again. The American poet Marianne Moore, who was a destructive reviser of her own poems, confessed to Grace Shulman, I aspire to have a taproot, but I don't have one. The Astoria Taliesin, the story of Taliesin, is a bardic or quasi-bardic creation myth. It links the bard to a number of widespread folkloric themes and locates him firmly in the West and North Wales of the 6th century. Um, the location of the... Uh, right, the location... The, the myth involves a woman called Ceridwen, woman of the cauldron. And the uh, story is located in Llyn Tegid, Bala Lake in North Wales. Uh, Ceridwen has a son called Morvan Avagdi, pitch black sea raven, that is a cormorant, um, and he was uh, hideously ugly. So in order to compensate him for his appearance, <coughs> Ceridwen prepares a magical brew designed to endow her son with poetic inspiration. She employs Gwion to feed the fire under the cauldron. As the potion has to simmer for a year and a day, so it needs somebody to stir it. But just as it's ready for drinking, three drops from the cauldron fly out and scald Guion's hand. He puts it to his mouth and so receives the inspiration meant for Morvran. He is pursued by the furious Kiridwen through a protracted shape-shifting uh, sequence in which Gwion turns himself into a hare and she pursues him as a greyhound. He becomes a fish and she an otter. He transforms into, a, transforms into a bird and she into a hawk. It ends when Gwion, as a grain of wheat, is swallowed by Caridwen as a hen. She subsequently gives birth to him and abandons the child to the river in a leather bag. He's rescued and renamed Taliesin. 
and grows up into a uniquely skillful poet. It's worth going back to the story for a moment um, to consider the source of poetic ability. I won't trouble you with the recipe for creativity here, though I've taken note of it myself, but whoever drank the first three drops of it would be knowledgeable in the different varieties of poetry and full of the spirit of prophecy. The writer goes on, and I'll read you some of the Welsh just for fun. A heavy da hia welai, but I gubble or see the fish I him, or the aether a tree darna draithir and a blind, and when win cadarna, ar a shy vord and a bead or gadernid, a run a torai a pyre and drushai, you shung a gwenwin, and benna they are. So this is talking about Caridwen, and she also saw that all the juice of these herbs, excepting the three drops that led the way, was of the strongest poison, which could be strong in the world, and which would break the cauldron into pieces to spill the poison on top of the earth. It can't be unreasonable to speculate that some of the poison might have adhered to the first three poetic drops, especially when it's been speculated that the name Gwion itself might mean a little prototypic poison. So cooking and poetry are closer allies earlier than you might have expected. A few years ago, we celebrated the centenary of Dylan Thomas's work. I took the opportunity to reread his poetry very closely, and that convinced me that Thomas was a far greater genius than I or many of his critics have given him credit for. Generally, though, people seem to be much more interested in Thomas as a representative of the cursed art artist than in his writing. Elizabeth Bishop, who met him shortly before his untimely death, due note not to alcohol poisoning, but a medical error. In a letter to a friend, fearing for Thomas, she wishes that poets should have a self-doubt, have self, sorry, I'll start that again. Um. Poets should have self-doubts left out of their system completely, as one can see most of the surviving ones seem to have. But look at poor Carl, that's Robert Lowell, and Marianne, who hangs on just by the skin of her teeth, that's Marianne Moore, who hangs on just by the skin of her teeth and the most elaborate paranoia I've ever heard of. <coughs> as his life became more chaotic, and after his first prodigious years as a poet, Thomas was finding it increasingly difficult to write. We know that before his death, he was planning to write a long poem in the character of Taliesin. The, um, in notes, he wrote, Thomas was planning to adopt the persona of the Godhead, the author, the first cause, architect, lamplighter, the beginning word, the anthropomorphic baller-out and black baller, the quintessence, scapegoat, martyr, maker, he on top of the hill in heaven. Thomas is being more than a shapeshifter here. He was planning to speak as God himself. A risky position, especially when combined with a logocentric religious tradition and a word-based artistic genre. 
At other times, Thomas seems to regard words themselves as divinity. And this is Thomas again. Such sandstorms and ice blasts of words, such slashing of Hamburg and Hamburg too, such staggering peace, such enormous laughter, such and so many blinding bright lights breaking across the just awaking wits and splashing all over the pages in a million bits and pieces, all of which were words, 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 and each of which was alive forever in its own delight and glory and oddity and light. In this passage, Thomas seems to have replaced God with language. That's all very well. But what happens to a poet who can't write anymore? Who feels that he's been rejected by the language God? It's not difficult to see how this might drive one to despair. This is romantic only for people who haven't experienced it. I find that if I'm not writing, I almost inevitably fall ill. But don't think for a second that the muse is a compliant force. Here's what I wrote in Sunbathing in the Rain about her, or him, or it. Poetry has acquired a fluffy image, which is totally at odds with its real nature. It's not pastel colours, but blood red and black. If you don't obey it as a force in your life, it will tear you to pieces. Such a drive may mean simply that writing is a powerful displacement activity. But I would suggest that this danger is mitigated by how the arts turn us inevitably out of the self and towards communication with the rest of human society. My case for the resilience of poets relies on a certain view of the collective nature of language. It's not the creation of an individual ego, but the result of centuries of disputation, conflict and reconciliation. When a poet speaks, every word she uses rings with the echo of that word placed in other poems by her forebears and also uh, with those of the future writers. For example, when I'm describing a bird, my ear's memory also hears this medieval lyric. And you need to know that a musket in this context is a male sparrowhawk, okay? The Latin refrain means, uh, fear of death undoes me. In what estate, so ere I be, timor mortis conturbat me. As I went on a merry morning, I heard a bird both weep and sing. This was the tenor of her talking. Timor mortis conturbat me. I asked the bird what she meant. I am a musket, both fair and gent. For dread of death I am all shent. Timor mortis conturbat me. When I shall die I know no day. What country or place I cannot say. Wherefore this song sing I may. Timor mortis conturbat me. Jesu Christ, when he should die, to his father he gan say, Father, he said in Trinity, Timor mortis conturbat me. O Christian people, behold and see, this world is but a vanity and replete with necessity. 
timor mortis conturbat me. Wake I or sleep, eat or drink, when I on my last end do think, for greater fear my soul do shrink, timor mortis conturbat me. God grant us grace, him for to serve, and be at our end when we stirve, strive, sorry, stirve, and from the fiend he us preserve. Timor mortis conturbat me. Not only is this a dialogue between the bird and the poet, its etymological range covers two cultures, cultures, classical and early modern, and all the times in between. This speech act is a bridge between periods, rather than a moat separating nations from each other. If the fear of death undoes the speaker, then its expression in the poem builds him or her up again. When we're writing, we're not talking to ourselves, but to language itself and everybody who speaks it. And answers come back, a feedback loop created by form. The willingness to listen to this is what makes a writer great. I've got a second quote from uh, Dostoevsky here, and um, it's about the nature of good language. A man who lies to himself and believes his own lies become unable, becomes unable to recognise truth, either in himself or in anyone else, and he ends up losing respect for himself and for others. When he has no respect for anyone, he can no longer love, and in order to divert himself, Having no love in him, he yields to his impulses, indulges in the lowest forms of pleasure, and behaves in the end like an animal. And it all comes from lying, lying to others and to yourself. It's not hard to think here of the fake communication made easy by the social media, like President and those like President and those like President Trump and Vladimir Putin who are committed to its practice. Dostoevsky was talking about great art, but it's striking to me how these politicians exhibit some artistic qualities. Trump is a performance artist of genius. He knows how to harness strong emotions to a few words, how to project an imaginative scenario with total conviction, and how to ensure an audience suspends its disbelief. As we know, he plays fast and, truth with the, uh, fast and loose with the truth, furthering his own aims by creating confusion rather than clarity. Here I remember that Stalin was a poet and Hitler a failed painter. Vladimir Putin, I notice, has a way of using words with a surface truthfulness to conceal but not hide his actual strategies. <coughs> a tiny example of this comes from the time when the submarine Kursk sank with all hands. His response to an American TV host's question is both a literal truth and betrays a breathtaking callousness, given that it took about 10 days for the search party to have been uh, set up. And the host asks, what happened to the submarine? And Putin says, it sank. I believe that you can see this in many of his public pronouncements. Ursula Le Guin, poetry and fantasy writer, 
calls these mirror words, each of which reflects the truth and none of which leads anywhere. I wasn't in the least surprised to see that not one poet took part in Trump's inauguration. The two types of discourse aren't compatible. The literary critic Northrop Fry warned there is only one way to degrade mankind permanently and that is to destroy language. Even though poetry is repeatedly called a dying art, it always neglects to die. This is because it uses language at its most resilient. Some of the broadsheets this week ran censorious articles criticising advertising for corrupting the English language. Examples are, find your happy, eat more amazing, or the new slogan of the Wales Tourist Board, find your epic. <laughs> this instantly made me want to use this kind of language in a poem as an experiment, rather than joining in with the condemnation. For a poet, this kind of innovation is an opportunity not to be missed if it can be used in the service of form and beauty, rather than simply selling you a car or a holiday, though you should all go to Wales, it is worth a visit. <laughs> Let me be clear, I'm not talking here about language that is willfully misused to disguise meaning, to frustrate communication between equals. In her book about manic depression, Touched by Fire, Kay Redfield Jameson attempted to re recreate, no, uh, attempted to create meaningful statistics by extrapolating figures for mental illness from the writings and lives of dead poets. Her conclusions were startling. That poets are 40 times more likely to be manic depressive than the rest of the population and eight times more likely to commit suicide. However, statistics can go both ways. A meta-study reviewing other studies in 1998 found that of 29 studies considered, 15 found no link between creativity and mental illness. Nine found a link and five were agnostic. The American Wallace Stevens called the poet's work the stronger life, an emphasis that I share. Poet's work is generally ignored, extremely badly paid, if at all, and socially isolated. It requires self-questioning, rumination on difficult issues and large stretches of time when you have no idea of what you're doing or whether it will be of any value at all. In this situation, I'd say that far from being casualties or wimps, writers are the SAS of the written word. In his poem, Resolution and Independence, Wordsworth asserted, we poets in our youth begin in gladness, but thereof in the end come despondency and madness. John Berryman, the great American religious poet, killed himself in 1972. But in her memoir, um, poets in their youth, Eileen Simpson, his widow, noted that his father had killed himself aged 40 and argued that her husband's writing had given him 17 more years than would otherwise have been the case. So what is good speech? 
virtuous speech in the original medical sense of bringing strong benefit to the user. When my husband uh, was diagnosed with stage 4 lymphoma over a decade ago, and he's still in remission, I, I should tell you, I, I set a long poem in a hospital. This made me think about how my, <coughs> excuse me, this made me think about how my own writing fitted into the whole process of healing him. Not that I was healing him. Um, perhaps I was healing myself of the, the shock. Um, anyway, this was my updating of the classical invocation to the gods in an epic. <coughs> um, and this is a book called The Hospital Odyssey. So it is an epic. Um, I've said already that I won't feel well till this poem's finished and I find what I mean about health and loving. It's a hospital, this place I'm constructing line by line with clinics in it and sunlit rooms open to anyone. Words are my health, the struggle to hear and transcribe the tune behind what I'm given by word of mouth. It's the only work that can make me immune to lying. May my language gene grant me haemoglobin and many platelets, potency deep inside bone marrow. My safety lies with other poets who've shown the way they took through shadows. Milton, Vion, be with me now. I want to capture what it is to care for someone you love who's very ill. How quickly you age as you see them suffer. You'd do anything to make them well, but you can't. Now help me, Virgil. Give me the strength of your long sinews to capture that brave but painful smile couples exchange when they both know the score. Help me to draw on wells that are clean and kind and plentiful. What do you say when someone you love is dying and there's nothing you can do to stop it happening. And you're alive and well, nowhere near through adoring them. And you can't follow. One body's never enough. My reach is long. Of one thing you can be sure, I'll never give up on this endless search for you. And it's my only cure to touch you. Yes, stranger, I mean you. The real expert on <coughs> mindfulness is the Buddha, who declared, words can have the power both to destroy and heal. When words are both true and kind, they can change our world. And um, I just want to read another little clip from Hospital Odyssey. It's about, uh, it's a kind of cosmology of crisis. Um, it's a long story, but uh, Maris, who is the uh, carer, is in outer space. I told you it was a long story, but, um, and she can see uh, Hardy, her husband, for the first time. So they're both in um, 
in danger in outer space. Maybe not then, but this is what Hardy saw from his dying. Maris bending over him and behind her, the vibrant, dazzling core of the sun, rich and red as hemochrome at 15 million degrees. He was overcome by the knowledge that everything out there was in truth his own body. We're filaments of light. We're talking with everywhere at once. And we were never meant to be thought of as single, lines to be bent in the space-time continuum. That's prose. No, it's more like the drive of poetry. It's as when I rhyme, there's always a nanosecond before I've chosen a word when I perceive all its homophones at once, before the end word's probability wave collapses, before I take a chance on one meaning, when my mind revolves with the quantum mechanics that make stars evolve from the tiniest jitters. We're born to catastrophe. Galaxies fly away from each other in identical forms. Matter never sees fit to die. And if life is the transfer of energy from one state to another, this poem from me to you, then this continual exchange must be our purpose. Infinity's birdsong continues just beyond the range of our human hearing. Love is the hinge on which it, on which it all turns. <coughs> My experience... All oh, right, check. There we are. My experience of writing poetry since I was age seven is that it's the best tool I have for working out what the truth of any situation is, though therapy and prayer are both fundamental in my life. When I teach university students, what strikes me is how baffled they are by their own poor language skills. These are not the fault of the university, but of schools, many of which haven't taught the students how to use language to find out what they mean and it's certainly not the fault of the students. This involves labour, failure, obsessive redrafting. And who in their right mind wants to do that? Well, precisely those people who know that they're mad, that they're not well, only pain drives you hard enough to brave these confusions and to move forward towards clarity, which is the only thing that can save us. And a conversation with others which, more than pills, exercise, is the most potent tool we have in our personal and collective armoury. The great Welsh language poet Bobby Jones goes even further. Angai rutinda ovni and vamodin varath. Death, you are afraid of me because I'm a poet. Now there's a reason for writing away from ill health, the abuse of power, and towards an extravagant sanity. Thank you very much. So as, as someone whose favourite poetry publication is called Three Drops from a Cauldron, I found that absolutely delightful. Um, Vice-Chancellor, Catherine, the Carolines, gentlefolk, all thank you. Five years ago, I curated a pop-up installation at Modern Art Oxford about mental health. I called it What There Is Instead of Rainbows, and I asked people to send me something about the time when they were at their lowest point. 
One of the pieces I was sent was a photo journal documenting a teenage road trip the artist had taken with her best friend, who would be dead just two years later. Their story showed perfectly the way that at our lowest points, we still find connection with art, with others, and even, however fleetingly, in those connections with joy. And when I knew Gwyneth was coming to give this wonderful talk, it was those things and that piece to which I was instantly sent back. The piece was called We Were Making Fairy Tales, and that title is one that I shamelessly purloined. We were making fairy tales. We were knights of rhyme so high our mics made bite marks in the belly of the sky. We married hope and disappointment and anointed pages with them. We took notes of rage and fear and motes of tenderness and made their dreams our stage with them. We took shaman and at penpoint made them summon every poet to make wages for our souls with them. We were making fairy tales. We were Bonnie and Clyde. We were Jekyll and Hyde. We were the moon and tide. We were a skin that only had one side. Damn it, we were park and ride. <laughs> we were making fairy tales while they were getting by. All the people at their nine to five. The morning swarm performing caffeinated rituals in their concrete hives. Burnt out minds still leaking empty lines, echoes of the decades where their lives were left behind, their white lightning veins ablaze through days of mediocrity and nights of getting high and mornings coming down and never getting dry. But we, we were making fairy tales. We trailed gingerbread rhymes and threads of twine through the labyrinthine minefields in our minds. We folded syllables into origami cranes and poems into paper planes and flew into the sun like speeding guitars, repeating the fastest bars of every riff the pistols ever played and scratched our names inside the eyelids of its flames. And your anger was so pure and your stanzas were so raw and the heavens were so sure that every drop of agony was true. The mermaids sang in stereo for you. We were making fairy tales, but now I'm looking in at shadows that are slowly growing thin through windows that are slowly filling in. And there's silence instead of once upon a time. And there's silence Stealing lines from rhymes and times from memories and melodies from all our tunes. And their silence healing all our sacred wounds. And there's 